So um, many of our drugs come from all of the other groups of living organisms. This is, is the currently accepted tree of life for all living things, a big bunch of, in fact, these purple and red sections are all the microbes that we share the earth with. Everybody's in competition with each other. Everybody is avoiding predation or trying to get food or trying to get at resources. And you know the structure of that living organism kind of depends on how far do you have to get to for, to, for those resources? Or do you have to get away from a predator of some kind? But really, the most successful organisms on Earth are microbes. And so we get a lot of our drugs from microbes. But more recently, um, especially when, when uh, our ability to treat diseases, identify disease early and treat it early has us looking for drugs in other animals. There's, a, there's drugs derived from poison frogs, there's drugs derived from yew trees, willow trees. Um, so drugs definitely derived from fungi as they're competing with other microbes. So we get, our sources of drugs are, are everywhere. Um, we also synthesize drugs in the lab and we also use just plain minerals like the mag sulfate that we just talked about as drugs. So um, the reason that we can look to the rest of the living world for drugs is because we generally still use, if we're air using, have aerobic respiration, we're still using a lot of the same proteins. Sodium potassium pumps, calcium sodium antiporters, things like that. Uh, the schedule of drugs um, demonstrates to me anyway that um, there is, like digoxin, there's, there's a fine line between uh, what is a poison and what has a therapeutic purpose. Um, Coumadin. Yeah, yeah. Coumadin, the ingredient in rat poison. There's, there's other uh, rodenticides that are neurotoxins specifically, don't cause... Um, yeah, and malathion, diazinon, those pesticides are attacking the same cholinergic uh, uh, synapses as we have, right? So which is why they, it affects our physiology as well. So in terms of controlled sub substances, you've heard of these schedules, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's all based on the federal government's, in fact, an old, an old understanding of, for the most part, the the therapeutic benefit versus the risk for um, habituation or um, dependence. Um, so most of these drugs are secondary metabolites from plants. It's because plants are trying to keep insects from eating them. Then I thought, this is interesting. What else is still classified as a Schedule One? It's non-narcotic. Yes, marijuana is still Schedule One. Why is it not on this list? Yeah. I don't know why they chose not to put it on this list, but it is still a Schedule One. Yeah, yeah. Have they changed the, uh, some of the classifications of the painkillers? I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe you mean from being a Schedule One to something different, or a Schedule Two to a Schedule Three? No, I thought I don't know why. Yeah. I mean, it's a little, it's a little weird that opium is a Schedule Two and heroin is a Schedule One since they're basically the same thing. But yeah, yeah. For a while, they were, you know, giving ecstasy or MDMA for like relationship issues. You know, like yeah. working stuff out. Yeah. Why is like no MDMA or ecstasy represented on this list? Or do you see something that I don't actually? Um. 
I guess maybe it's not Kentucky. Textbooks are written by private companies. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and this is an old uh, federal law, too. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, we'll, we'll fly through this pretty quickly because we have talked a bit about this and we've seen this before in A&P. Um, in the structure of cells, your cells, there are, uh, there's a lot of compartmentalization, organelles like the endoplasmic reticulum, the Golgi apparatus, and so forth that are membrane bound. All of those membranes, the surface membrane of the cell, all of those internal membranes are very metabolically active. And it's the proteins, some of which are enzymes, many of which are channels or pumps or receptors, um, enable the cells to change their external environment and communicate with other cells. Um, so the two main components of a cell membrane are the lipid component, the fatty component, which makes it waterproof, but the other main component of the proteins. And a lot of the drugs that we use are affecting the protein. So the sodium potassium pump, for example, is a membrane protein. If you poison it with digoxin, right, um, then you're changing the whole function of that cell. And in some tissues, like the neurons and muscle cells, that sodium potassium pump uses about 60% of the cell's total daily energy budget. Proteins can serve as receptors for chemical messages, um, like hormones, neurotransmitters, or just the ability to detect that you're another cell that belongs here. That's what uh, white blood cells do. The characteristics, and this is important for understanding how drugs affect a target, the characteristics of these proteins serving as receptors, they tend to be very specific. So we have adrenergic receptors, and before they identified the subclasses, they were just all adrenergic receptors. And it became very important, right, when they realized that the treatment for asthma could be something more than just with epinephrine. We could target specific receptors that made the treatment of asthma a lot more tolerable. Um, there's a limit to how much can be received at these receptors, so giving more Narcan doesn't necessarily change the outcome, right? Because you can saturate all those receptors. And in the, in the development of drugs, often we're looking for something that will compete with the receptor, and, and Narcan is a good example, um, and, and outcompete it, take the place of the drug, uh, or the poison, the toxin, what have you, um, and oh, prevent the normal, but not stimulate the normal response in that cell. What is it called when it's, it's, it outcompetes the other? Mm -hmm. what, what so competitive inhibition, competition, or antagonism. Yeah, okay. Antagonist, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes? Uh, comparing something like heroin to fentanyl, yeah. sometimes you need a lot more of the... Uh, Narcan, yeah. So is that do you, because the fentanyl is filling more of those receptors, or is it because it just has a bigger effect with fewer, like the same amount of receptors might be filled, but has a greater effect on those receptors? Like a higher affinity? Like it binds better with them? No, I just mean um, just that the fentanyl affects your CNS yeah, yeah. more per uh, receptor. You know, I like, thought it was it because fentanyl was just that much more concentrated, Con more concentrated, I think so that it just had more, more potential in your system with a smaller dose to bind to more sites. Yeah. So it would more actually fill more. They all bind to the same receptors and naloxone competing with those same receptors, but I think it is all kind of dose timing of distribution in the body. You know, you got to make sure you find the source of, of 
the fentanyl too, it'd right? It'd be good to say, Janice, like how many sites are there that, that heroin binds to? It's all in our brain that we're concerned about, right? Brain and spinal cord. Mm -hmm. Brain and spinal cord. But what you're concerned about is, you know, things affecting the brain stem, so respiratory center, cardiac right. center, and vasomotor center, yeah. Right, but, yeah. but if, let's say, fentanyl is super concentrated versus uh, heroin that you're shooting up here yeah, to yeah. really get the euphoria you want, fentanyl, does it, is it binding to more of them, or is it stimulating that receptor site more aggressively? It, it's not more aggressive, right? Because once you stimulate... Well, it does, it does in part depend on how long the drug stays on the receptor. But, and so I don't know if fentanyl binding stays on those mu receptors longer than other narcotics, other opioids. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fentanyl? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'll see if I can find out. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. So NSAIDs interfere with enzyme function, so we can do that. Albuterol interferes with the receptor on the surface of the cell. So drugs can affect the inside functioning of the cell as well as the receiving of messages that would otherwise be normal. Yes? Um, aspirin protocol says like contrast. Aspirin As protocol? Yeah. Uh-huh. And said allergies. All and said no aspirin. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They don't get it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They should know that. If they should know that. Most people say I'm allergic. Yeah, or aspirin. Yeah, yeah. Aren't those people generally pretty sick? Um, uh, I have heard yeah. that people who are allergic to aspirin generally have pretty severe um, uh, reactive airway. Like, it's very severe. Oh. Um, In response to the NSAID or pre-existing? Pre-existing. Oh. They're generally like preemies with nasal polyp. Like, they oh. look like sick. I don't. If, you, if you're reporting that you're allergic to aspirin, you likely have a, a history of respiratory issues. You're saying? Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It's not that, that aspirin itself causes your asthma. You generally have pre-existing severe asthma. And it exacerbates it. And it exacerbates it. Well, aspirin's definitely a caution with uh, someone that has asthma. Uh, yeah. In, in general, but yeah, I would think that hmm. you have to define differently whether someone's actually allergic or they think they have GI upset from, upset from their aspirin. So a lot of doctors will have spoken to their to their patients about the fact they shouldn't take aspirin because it will irritate their stomach. And so they'll just tell you yeah. they're allergic to aspirin. Yeah. And so defining that sometimes has been important for people, uh, medics, to, to, to know whether or not they can get, get there. Like, yeah. Are you saying that you have a GI upset from this? and? Or are you saying you actually break out in hives or you have itchiness from your aspirin? And, and they'll say, no, I've never had problems like that. I only, I only don't take it because it makes my stomach upset. And you're like, okay, I'm going to still give you aspirin in that situation. Yeah. I wouldn't give it to you if you said you had itching and hives right. from it. So, yeah. Yeah. Because this will help yeah, you not have a heart attack. Yeah. More important than a little bit of stomach upset today. Right. Yeah. So... Uh, normal function of a receptor associated with the cell membrane is that chemical message binds to it and changes the metabolism inside the cell. An agonist, although it's not the same chemical, will do the same thing. Some of our drugs are actually the same chemical, like epinephrine. Some of them look like the chemical. 
right, and, and bind to that and produce the same response. Antagonists, like naloxone, will bind to the receptor, prevent the normal chemical from binding there, but won't stimulate the metabolic reaction in the cell and so block the action of that normal chemical message. Yep. Um, this is not as common and maybe unnecessary information, but we can block in the short term, and that's what naloxone does, um, or this kind of um, a kind of a, a, a prescribed chronic exposure to this antagonist could eventually tell the cell to just quit making the receptors, to downregulate the production of receptors so the cell becomes less sensitive to that normal chemical message. So in the development, I just want to talk about this briefly, in the development of new drugs, it takes several years. Um, and in more recent years, there's uh, more uh, pressure on the FDA to prolong the phase where you actually do clinical research to identify and advance the adverse effects. There are so many drugs, and I have to say, maybe this is just from my perspective, there are so many drugs in recent years, uh, specifically for women, contraceptives, for example, that have had such horrible adverse effects that they stay on the market for like a year because people die or become infertile for the rest of their life or, or something like that. So there's been more recently calls, you know, the, the drugs that, I mean, so blood thinners, you know, like, like Eliquis and river, uh, that is a, yeah, and Rivaroxaban, things like that, have serious bleeding uh, potential. But as Connie Zastro, the, does she talk, teach for you at all? Oh, so she's one of the um, cardiovascular surgeons, endovascular surgeons. Uh, she says, well, uh, it's my experience. You uh, are on a blood thinner to prevent a blood clot and something horrible happening like a stroke, an MI, losing a limb, losing a kidney, something like that. Or you fall, you hit your head, and you're dead in just a few minutes. So how do you know, you're, you already have cardiovascular disease what seems to be the more appropriate way to live your life today in the, in the fear that you might bleed or have a stroke and be incapacitated and in a nursing home forever. So, um, but a lot of people really balk at those, at those, some of those drugs with the serious adverse effects. Um, another one, one are the, the, um, the life-threatening genital infections, right? <laughs> with, with the glucose transporters. Yeah. Your hand was up. Yeah. The, uh, the doctor that was saying that about like the blood thinners. Yeah. She says use it. Yeah, use it. Don't form a clot and lose a limb, lose your brain, lose a kidney. Yeah, lose gut, right? That's one of the most horrible, I mean, short of dying from COPD, in my opinion, having an infarct affecting your gut, like in a mesenteric artery, is like one of the worst ways to go. And for elderly people, it's almost always fatal. Yeah, yeah. Um, because by the time they just feel pain so much differently, by the time they even recognize that they're seriously ill or some loved one realizes that they're ill and they need to go to the hospital, they've infarcted, they've ruptured their bowel, they're septic, it's just like, and it's so painful. Yeah. Bowel infarction, yeah. Uh, or a thrombus that forms right there, yeah. Yeah. Your mother-in-law? My grandmother. Oh, your grandma, yeah. Yeah. Had surgery, removed eight feet of her small intestine, uh, stitched it all back together. And when I went in to see her, I was in medic class actually. I went in to see her, and so I was curious about everything. And she was all swollen up because they were just giving her tons of fluid to because she was septic. Her blood pressure because she was septic. And 
like my grandma. Yeah. Anyway, she ended up surviving. Wow. She lived for years, and wow. the, the repopulation of her GI tract with good uh, probiotics yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah. Uh, took a while. So she suffered from diarrhea for the next couple of years, but ended up having that. Yeah, and now they do uh, fecal transplants to correct that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, 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 I remember, I remember, never, never, I remember talking to this elderly woman whose husband was so sick, and the doctor was talking to her about a fecal transport, and, and she was looking at me like I was going to give her some, and I said, but you should do it, it will fix him, right, you should do it, said, okay, yeah. would usually present with abdominal pain with abdominal pain, was it? Yeah. Yeah, Most maybe. Say it's a horrible abdominal pain, but my grandmother um, that never complained anyway. So yeah, 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 that's just it. She said she yeah, had yeah. abdominal pain, but wasn't enough to really do anything about it until she passed out in the rig at the, the rest stop there, Arlington, yeah, yeah. on the way uh, north yeah. again. So uh, maybe in shock or have sepsis. Or, yeah, yeah, so she was in shock at that point. She'd already gotten septic yeah. and, uh, and lost her blood pressure. And all her I never knew that yeah. she'd have a. I, I hadn't even considered the fact that you could have a. An infarct yeah. anywhere. You yeah. can have an infarct anywhere. Either from or an yeah, yeah. So, I mean, renal infarct is not, yeah, not yeah. out of the realm, right? Yeah. They happen. Like, yeah. 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 When you have coronary artery disease, you have cardiovascular disease, you have disease everywhere. It's usually more pronounced in the vessels that um, undergo some of the most, the biggest pressure changes. Um, but, yeah. So but you can. He went to the hospital, you know. He had a renal infarct, or did he have oh, a slowly? Infarct, I guess, yeah, yeah, so. but the, but wasn't it a slow occlusion that decreased blood flow, and then he got hypertension? No, I think it. I think it infarcted. Oh, it infarcted. Okay. Because he did have some some general reduction of his vessel size. Got it. Okay. Yeah. But he's still producing urine because he has another kidney. Yeah. Yeah. And the other kidney happened to have two good vessels going to it. Yeah. Mm. Um, it, it caused uh, him to have this infarct, and so he had gone to see his doctor on like two occasions before they finally figured it out. Yeah. So meanwhile, he's having this horrible aching pain as his kidney dies, and they couldn't figure and it out. And hypertension. Was right? it hypertension? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because that kidney that was getting poor blood flow was activating the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, so he was getting more and more hypertensive during the process because the kidney did not have enough pressure to do its job, so it was just doing that. Yeah, because that happens on the individual kidney basis. Yeah. Yeah. He also had a, a years earlier, he had a little. The dural tear, yeah. Uh, tear in his spinal dura. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and so lost all CSF. Fluid yeah. Into the space outside of his spinal column and was getting headaches and uh, didn't understand why the horrible headaches because he's low on spinal fluid and uh, cerebral spinal fluid too up there. And uh, so we called him Courtlow instead of Harlow. It was Courtlow. <laughs> he had to get something called a blood patch. Where they took yeah, yeah. So they, they sit there and they just kind of damage things and get some bleeding. And so it clots and clots off. And they do the same thing with any uh, tap to collect CSF. They try to produce a blood patch, which is just basically a blood clot. Yeah, so it doesn't leak out. But but after that spinal tap, you're supposed to lay flat for at least eight hours. So, yeah. Yeah, to, to let that clot really solidify. All right. Um, if you do uh, studies, right, in EMS, 
um, know that there's been a lot of observational studies, relatively small sample size, often with animal testing. Um, before a drug is even tested in the clinical situation, they recruit healthy people just to look at how they're going to respond to that drug. Um, then you usually have run-in uh, phases with small numbers of patients and, and mostly starting to look at the adverse effects um, as well as the, as the outcomes, uh, the desired outcomes. And if we participate in research, it's usually part of a large, randomly um, uh, controlled uh, trial. So, um, yeah. And then after the trial results are reported, it can take two years or more before the FDA will make a ruling. So it takes a long time. And then much more post-marketing surveillance, much more. So doctors are required, if they prescribe a drug, to report to the FDA any adverse effects that they, you know, whether or not they think it's associated with the drug. Um, so, in terms of drug safety and its ability to produce the, the desired result, the efficacy, um, it depends on several factors. Body weight to surface area, so how much body mass um, per surface area. Um, the solubility of that drug, especially in cell membranes, if it's, it has to get into cell membranes or across an epithelium. The dose, the route, of course. Um, there are proteins in the blood plasma that are meant to bind to other chemicals, and if the drug gets bound by that protein, it it's taken out of the solution. So that's part of studying the pharmacology of a drug. We look at how that drug may be detoxified or eliminated. So I don't know what app you use for drugs. Do you use Hippocrates or... Yeah, and so it will tell you, it will tell you how, the, in the pharmacology, it will tell you whether it's metabolized in the liver or in the kidneys, because those are the primary organs of detoxification. Um, this information I find helpful to know because it will also tell you where your problem will be in overdose. So an aspirin overdose, aspirin's metabolized in the liver, you destroy your liver with aspirin overdose. Um, Advil, chronic abuse of Advil, Advil's metabolized in the kidneys, chronic abuse of Advil, you'll have kidney failure. Yes? Uh, I did some quick research speaking the aspirin. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what the. I guess it just reflects an inflammation response. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just start looking in there. <laughs> um, so the patient's metabolic rate will determine how fast they metabolize, especially with regard to the liver and or the kidneys. So people with kidney failure, the same dose that you give to someone without kidney failure, the person with kidney failure, even mild kidney failure, will, have, will be uh, experiencing a larger dose because they don't eliminate it as fast. Does that make sense? And I think some of your protocols say that. Be careful with this drug in patients with kidney failure, right? Or be aware that if this person has diabetes and reduced kidney function, this drug will have a, 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 a greater effect. Um, if there are other medications or, you know, medications are considered toxins, but if there are other toxins or medications on board, that could uh, change the, the safety or the efficacy of that, of that drug. Um, because your liver has a capacity to detoxify in any one moment. If it's already trying to detoxify drug A and you give drug B, it may not be able to detoxify drug B as effectively. So the, 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 the risk of adverse reactions increases. Um, but similarly, 
someone who's chronically asking their liver to detoxify heroin or fentanyl or something like that. So chronic drug abusers tend to have really beefed up ability in their, in their liver and the drugs you give because their, their ability to detoxify is now increased. When they don't have drugs on board, the drugs you give have less effect they're detoxified faster. And it's related to the enzymes that detoxify in the liver are pretty general. They're called multifunction oxidases. If you don't have fentanyl to detoxify and you give some other drug, you're just gonna detoxify that other drug faster. It's why a lot of drug, it's part of the reason rather that uh, some uh, uh, narcotic abusers um, have a really uh, high, uh, uh, it's difficult to treat their pain, right? They, they don't respond as you would predict to normal concentrations of pain medication. They need higher doses to control their pain. Circulation, so the distribution of the med, most of the medications that you're gonna give are, are eventually gonna get into the bloodstream. And once they get into the bloodstream, then they diffuse into the tissue space and have access to all the cells. But if you have compromised circulation in one area of the body, the drug's not gonna get there. Age, your sex, your race also have uh, an effect on the safety and efficacy of a drug. So there's a lot of cautions with respect to pregnant people, either because they don't know the effect of the drug on the developing fetus or embryo and pediatric patients for multiple reasons. What are the six rights of medication administration? And documentation, yeah, yeah. So right time you mean by? and expiration date, and expiration date. Yeah, so, yeah, good. And then your book talks about the sixth one, which is generally not covered in BLS, I think, um, is documentation. Yep, yep. So what's missing here? Yeah, good, all right. Uh, again, I'm gonna, where are we on time? Okay, oh, I'm already over. Okay, yeah, I'll try to be done at 10.30. Okay, we're gonna, we have a lot to talk about. So this just introduces kind of the organization of subsequent slides. So as we mentioned, drugs often bind to existing normal cellular receptors or they change or somehow enhance a physical process like the functioning of sodium potassium pumps. They might bind with another substance, removing it from action um, or activating it, um, alter a normal metapathway. Pathway. So there's, there's a lot of ways that drugs can alter the metabolism of a cell. A lot of that is controlled by enzymes. Um, drugs can affect intercellular messaging. So you give hormones like insulin, right? So you're, you're, um, you're actually providing an agonist. Um, prostaglandins modify locally cell signaling, whereas hormones affect long distance signaling. Neurotransmitters, of course, are just at synapses, so very um, short acting. Um, synapse uh, either on the effector or between neurons effects, but because uh, neurons can conduct impulses long distances, it tends to have a long distance effect and a broad effect. Um, but we can also change the production um, of uh, intercellular message like a neurotransmitter um, or hormone. So some of the type two diabetic drugs actually enhance the ability to make your own insulin. Yeah. Yes. 
produces some of the elements? That so there's lots of prostaglandins, but in most cases, we think about prostaglandins as either promoting inflammation mm -hmm. or promoting blood clotting because they are local. So blood clot hopefully forms just in this local environment and you do it really rapidly and then you run out of factors. Um, so that's thromboxane A2, for example, is one of the prostaglandins involved in, in blood clotting. Um, but prostaglandins are also involved in making some effectors more sensitive to neurotransmitters. So prostaglandin is used on the cervix to induce uh, labor and delivery because it'll make the whole uterus more sensitive to the oxytocin that's coming from the brain. Um, prostaglandin synthesis uh, produces a lot of chemical messages that promote inflammation. So when we take an ibuprofen or aspirin uh, or some other NSAID, it's to reduce prostaglandin synthesis. And so we reduce inflammation and therefore reduce pain. And it's not a hormone. What is it? So, so in terms of chemicals, it's not classified as a hormone because it's not carried in the bloodstream long distances. It's prostaglandins are probably made by every single cell in the body because they're experiencing something local and they want somebody to respond to that change. Um, so prostaglandins are made in the plasma membranes, the cell membranes of cells. They're therefore fat derived um, and they can easily diffuse into the cell next to it because they're fatty. Um, and, but it also means that they're not gonna travel long distance. If, if they're gonna enter the cell, they're not likely going to leave that cell and enter the next cell. So they usually just have a short distance effect. Some asthma medications affect um, prostaglandin production, a particular group of, of local chemical messages called the leukotrienes. Um, and again, because ideally when you take uh, an asthma inhaler, for example, uh, you just want it to affect the bronchioles. You don't want it to affect the whole body. So drugs may bind to cellular receptors, as we'd mentioned. Um, so in this case, morphine or morphine-like substances bind to a morphine receptor, uh, also called a mu receptor. But, and I think this is interesting to you, drug abuse of those narcotics, of those opioid drugs, also not only inhibits pain transmission, but it also causes the release of another neurotransmitter called GABA. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. Um, and so what it will do is change the release of dopamine in the brain. Dopamine and dopamine pathways in the brain are motivational pathways. Things that you, they, if you have a dopamine pathway stimulated, it encourages you to do, engage in the same behavior. So if you, you abuse narcotic drugs, you actually get a warm and fuzzy feeling in the same way that you would if you enjoy getting together with someone and have a nice conversation or eating a good meal or petting a puppy. Um, so, and that's why those, those narcotic drug abusers tend not to respond behaviorally in the same way that they should have in terms of getting the warm and fuzzy feelings from family relationships and friends, from eating, right? Because a lot of times they just have no interest in eating anymore. Um, uh, or, or anything else that would normally give pleasure, right, and satisfaction to people. Yeah. So, and that's, and that's largely, it's not just the removal of pain that they become addicted to. That's what they become addicted to. I can get this warm and fuzzy feeling without having to have a personal relationship or make a meal or do anything else that a normal person without the addiction would do. Yeah, it's a really, it's a really tough, tough thing. <laughs> 
Um, we talked about the we talked about GABA receptors here, right? So here is that normal GABA receptor, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. Um, most of your muscle relaxants are actually binding to a GABA, GABA receptor, um, uh, like the benzodiazepines, um, and so inhibiting that cell. So a muscle relaxer, they're trying to bind that drug, uh, like a flexural, to the GABA receptor so that motor neuron that innervates that muscle cell can't fire, isn't going to respond to the normal muscle stretch reflex, and is also going to be less able to respond to a voluntary impulse that says, please contract this muscle. Um, so we use drugs for that reason, too. But those same GABA receptors have binding sites for all kinds of drugs. Drugs that are used in the OR, for example, uh, and alcohol. Alcohol is a great muscle relaxant for this reason. <laughs> <My neck hurts. laughs> uh, so we talked a little bit about nicotinic receptors on the motor end plate. Um, so normally that sodium channel is closed, but when the acetylcholine binds to this nicotinic receptor, it opens and sodium rushes in. But knowing the structure of this receptor means that you could block that channel either by a non-depolarizing blocker of that nicotinic receptor or a depolarizing blocker, right? Um, a depolarizing blocker will open up that sodium channel and you'll get depolarization, but it will remain open. So you actually chalk that gate open and now you continue to depolarize. So you depolarize for a longer period of time, extending out the refractory period. What do you think succinylcholine does? Opens. It definitely opens the channel. It's a depolarizing blocker. So every single skeletal muscle, but not in an organized way. Um, have you seen fasciculations when sux is given? I haven't seen it given very much. Though. Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's impressive. It's kind of creepy. Oh. <laughs> Did you have to intubate your cat? Oh, oh. That's a good way to go to save money. Oh, oh. You didn't just use potassium? I got expired sucks yeah. in the fire hall. Oh. Long, so. oh. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't use narcotic either because you can't get narcotics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Shoot. The vet wouldn't put her down. Wanted to keep me going after more treatments. Like, I've already put every treatment into this, this cat. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see it under the skin. It just looks like little creepy crawlies under all the skin. You see it here in the neck because that's where you're looking. And then. Would have been better to hit her on the head with a shovel. I mean, honestly. Viking barrel. Aerial barrel. So we've talked about naloxone already. Um, as ILS providers, will they be giving naloxone IV or still intranasally? Uh, IV. IV. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. It'll likely have already been given intranasally by the time you get there. So then you have to decide if you're going to start an IV and give an IV or if you're going to wait it out. Yeah. You can always give more, but geez, the amount yeah, yeah. that cops are given now. Yeah. It's double our yeah. ULS dose. Yeah. Four, four, four per dose. Four when they may have given four, four yeah. of them by the time you get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That person already has 16 milligrams on intranasal. Yeah, yeah. Medicine. Gee, many. But if it's yeah. suspected for, um, for Could a be or something like yeah, yeah. that. Or if it's suspected for their arrest, right? That's part of the for a cardiac arrest? If we think it's a cardiac arrest, yeah. um, it's not the norm in it's our ACL. It's just 
decreased LOC. Consciousness of unknown origin, and then we would frequently give it for yeah. someone. We just don't know what's going on. So yeah. Contraindication, just hit them with it, see if it works, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. And the nice thing about nasal administration is you don't have to worry about ne needle sticks and or worry less about needle sticks, right? Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. Yep. Um, so one of the things we, one of the ways in which drugs could interact with normal metabolism of cells is by changing a physical process. So I also want to talk a little bit about IV fluids, not so much about the other things. We'll move pretty quickly. But IV fluids that you, as ILS providers, you'll be able to use are normal saline. Any D5, D10? Yeah? yeah? Yep. Uh, and, and, but no hypertonic saline, right? We do have hypertonic. For ILS providers. ILS. Okay. Okay, for ALS. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, remember the distribution of fluid. Does this picture look familiar? I think it's really helpful because it shows that water will move by osmosis through these compartments, right? Most of your body water is inside cells, but if you become low on water in your extracellular fluid compartment, your cells will lose water to the extracellular fluid compartment, right? Because it's driven by osmosis, it's all driven by concentration gradient. The more solutes you have in a compartment, right, the more water is tend to move there by osmosis. Normally, cells are full of proteins, and, and other things that help them hang on to water. So you have to become, you have to lose a fair amount of your extracellular fluid volume, either by excessive urination, uh, perspiration, diarrhea, before you start shifting fluid from your inside your cells to the extracellular fluid compartment. But your body's gonna have mechanisms to try and, even if it means sacrificing the function of cells, to maintain that fluid in the tissue space and in the blood circulatory system because that's the only way you can keep mixing up your extracellular fluid compartment, mixing up oxygen, carbon dioxide, distributing it to the lungs, for example, mixing up glucose, wastes, getting those to the kidneys for excretion, um, and so forth. So when you give normal saline, so this, I provided this link. This is a decent link. You can go back to the index and look up huge numbers of topics um, from a reliable source, so that might be useful to you. Um, but you use normal saline primarily as an extracellular fluid compartment um, volume expander. So you're rehydrating somebody who's really dehydrated, hypovolemic for any reason, or in shock. Um, if you give enough fluid that the kidneys have enough pressure to do your job, normal saline all by itself can help you uh, treat alkalosis, get rid of, because bicarbonate ion is filtered out and some of it is reabsorbed, but the more you filter out uh, the blood, the more you're going to excrete and you can help correct alkalosis. But what's the biggest concern in pH derangement? Is it acidosis or alkalosis typically? Acidosis. acidosis. But in severe dehydration, you can become alkalotic because you're not filtering enough and excreting enough bicarbonate. So that will help. And because normal saline, so normal saline means isotonic. Iso means the same, same tonicity, same tone, same concentration of sodium as in normally in the extracellular fluid compartment. So if you're low on sodium and you add this, it does help 
correct in a small way sodium depletion. That usually comes from prolonged vomiting or diarrhea. Okay. Uh, D5 has very little sugar in it. Um, it's really just adding more, more fluid. Um, D10 is actually providing some carbohydrates. And hypertonic saline, again, if we look back at this picture, if you give something that has more solute than normal in the extracellular fluid compartment, you're going to draw fluid from the cells. And so that will be important if you have increasing intracranial pressure. Because you don't use mannitol anymore, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, binding with substances in the body like activated charcoal. So activated charcoal in Actidose is like the charcoal that you put in your fish aquarium because it has all these uh, charges on it. It tends to attract other charged things, including drugs, often have charges that makes them water-soluble. And then Actidose also contains sorbitol. What lovely benefit of sorbitol does that provide, provide when you're treating an overdose, an ingested overdose? Sugar? Uh, you're unable to process this. It's a sugar alcohol, but you're unable to process it. So it stays in your gut. So nurses will frequently ask if our medication has sorbitol in it. When you're, when you're, charcoal. when you're, yeah, when you've yeah. given charcoal, yeah. It's a solute that stays in your gut. You don't absorb it, so water stays in your gut. And if you've ingested it and it's gotten all the way down to your intestine, now you have diarrhea. Yeah. Uh, we talked a little bit about mag. Um, it's not the sulfate that we're interested in, it's, it's this cation, which often is an antagonist wherever you have calcium, but it probably also helps block the release of neurotransmitters in the brain, so diminishes the incidence of seizures, especially in the um, toxicity of pregnancy. Or, or postpartum, because lots of women get eclampsia postpartum, too. Uh, contraindication for activated charcoal, I believe, is a caustic substance. Yes, yeah. How do I know if a substance is caustic? I mean, the most common caustic substances ingested are things like drain cleaner yeah. or strong, powerful cleaners of some kind. Um, and, then, and then you also don't give it uh, if it's been more than an hour after ingestion. Um, the best thing to do, um, and when, you know, I, I encourage people to put the poison control number in their rig and is to have somebody delegate someone to call poison control and if you know what the substance is ask them what's the best course of action here because they're going to know right away faster than med control right you're on hold you're on hold you're on hold you're on hold yeah right right they call poison control yeah and and poison control would prefer if if EMS called them first if the family hasn't already called them yeah sodium bicarb is to correct a pH imbalance. Mostly it buffers those hydrogens from acids. It will have, just like acids have an effect, it will change potassium distribution. Um, so sodium bicarb in particular increases the return of potassium into cells. Um, when might you specifically want that to happen? Acidosis. So in acidosis, you would actually increase that acidosis because potassium and hydrogen ion are exchanged. So if, you have, if you're acidotic in the extracellular fluid compartment, you want the opposite to happen. I know we're talking about sodium bicarb, but 
Oh, yeah, you, yeah, I'm sorry. I was asking about the potassium influx. Yes, sodium bicarb in acidosis, for sure. But if the problem is not acidosis and is a potassium problem, and you want potassium to go into cells, the problem is that there's excess potassium outside of cells. You'd still give sodium bicarb. Yeah, it's, a not, it's not a good question. I'm sorry. I'm asking too much. Um, you'll see peaked T waves if you're hyperkalemic. Yeah. And so the sodium bicarbonate will help, you know, if the kidneys aren't excreting that potassium, it's a quick and dirty way to get the potassium back into cells. Okay, we won't talk about monoclonal antibodies. Let's see, let's get to, oh, sorry. What do you want me to do? Keep going? Okay, all right. So we talked about reperfusion injury, and I just thought I'd um, provide you a picture to help you figure out what's going on. So oxygen normally has... Uh, a complete set of eight electrons in the orbit of that atom, right? Electrons interact with the electrons of other atoms. That's what a chemical reaction is. So chemical reactions, as opposed to nuclear reactions, right, involve the exchange or sharing of electrons between atoms. If oxygen um, loses an electron but is not participating in a chemical reaction with something else, then it wants to replace that electron, and it will steal that electron from anything and anyone in a cell that it wants. It will steal it from DNA, it will steal it from proteins. It wants to become more stable by filling this spot with the electron. We take antioxidants. So give me an example of an antioxidant. Green tea. The vitamins in green tea, right? Vitamin A is an antioxidant, for example. We take them because what those vitamins do, they easily lose their electrons to an oxygen-free radical, meaning that it's got a space for an electron that's not yet occupied. So the vitamin gets oxidized, it loses its electron to oxygen, but that protects the rest of your molecules. Yeah? So we take antioxidant vitamins so that we don't age ourselves by having oxygen steal electrons from our DNA, creating mutations, or steal it from the membrane, decreasing the strength of the membrane, or steal it from proteins interacting with the other parts of cell metabolism. Free radicals are bad. That's what free radicals are. Yeah. Um, so when we give oxygen, that's why we tend to target the 95% O2 sat and not hyperoxygenate because it's not necessary. Um, Keep in mind that your blood is a great sponge for oxygen and that hemoglobin will deliver oxygen to where it's needed. Providing more oxygen doesn't reflect need in any one tissue. So have faith that hemoglobin will deliver oxygen where it's needed to and you won't provide so much oxygen that you'll have a lot of oxygen-free radicals. Um, this is an old caution, but it's still... Um, makes sense that in patients with, that are chronic CO2 retainers, right, they may have low O2 normally um, and that it may be difficult or impossible to get their O2 sat up to 95%, but at the same time if their drive for breathing is based on uh, O2 because they're chronic CO2 retainers, you could suppress their, their um, drive to breathe. Um, in cardiac arrest, high flow O2 is indicated before there, um, you get return of circulation, and then you titrate down to 95%. Um, sorry, that is a typo. There shouldn't be a period there. Uh, in carbon monoxide poisoning, your SAO2 reading is not going to be accurate. It's probably going to be 98, 99, 100% because CO makes hemoglobin change to the same red color 
So you just give high flow O2 because you can't know what their actual oxygenation of their blood is and you're actually trying to bump off that CO um, and replace it, which is a very difficult thing unless, you unless you're actually in a hyperbaric environment. So really CO has, a has a higher affinity for hemoglobin. So unless you're putting oxygen in the blood under extra above atmospheric pressures, it's very tough to bump that CO off and replace it with oxygen. As a thought of that, if you don't go to the hyperbaric chamber and someone is on high flow O2, is it, is the affinity so great that that oxygen is, or that hemoglobin is holding on to that CO? Forever. Forever till it dies? And you have yes. To red blood cells so on a common treatment for serious CO poisoning is blood transfusion. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Uh, are, are free radicals just a part of our normal metabolic process? Free radicals are part of our normal process, and that's why we, we take in antioxidant vitamins in the food that we eat. Oxygen is the reason that we age. Oxygen is the reason that we die. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we oxidize ourselves to death. Yes. It's about hyperventilating somebody. We're just, uh, we're just increasing the amount of yeah, not necessarily hyperventilating, but just oversaturating. Yeah, their ox yeah, especially after an ischemic episode. Um, yeah, so yeah. Well, I, I I can't describe the particulars, but the, I mean they've looked at particular enzymes in mitochondria, for example, and when mitochondria are deprived from oxygen, they do funky things, and when oxygen is reintroduced, they're not ready to use that oxygen, and it results in the production of a whole bunch of free radicals. There was a drug that was under investigation for a long time trying to combat that thing, but it never got into phase three clinical trials because it just wasn't as effective as they thought it was going to be. But that would have been that would have been great if it worked. Um, yeah, hmm. yeah. Um, aspirin, also one of the drugs that you're able to use uh, both as BLS and ILS as well as ALS, um, is one of the oldest known medications. Here uh, shows the production of those local chemical messages, including prostaglandins and thromboxanes. Prostaglandins for inflammation, thromboxanes to promote blood clotting. And then we also mentioned earlier the leukotrienes, another local chemical message made from a fatty acid in the plasma membrane, so stays locally and diffuses into cells, um, also promoting inflammation. So some of the um, newer asthma medications um, are cortisone-like and block the production of leukotrienes, um, but are not interfering or changing in any way the autonomic nervous system responses. Um, so you can still have uh, an acute asthma attack, and your inhaler, like your Symbacort inhaler, for example, won't, be, won't serve as a rescue inhaler um, because this is a local long but slow-acting chemical message. Does that make sense? So a lot of people who are, who, even if they're on a, a cortisone-like inhaler, um, beclomethasone, so something that ends in an O-N-E, for example, or something like Simbacort, sounds like cortisone, those are long-lasting, uh, but um, not, uh, so long-lasting, but not quick, not fast-acting inhalers. Most of those people still have a rescue inhaler, Ventolin or Albuterol, something like that. Yeah. Um, when you take aspirin, aspirin interferes with both of those enzymes in the production of prostaglandins and thromboxane A2, which is why aspirin is an anticoagulant. It is um, 
uh, in the long term, it decreases your production of clotting proteins in the blood, but in the short term, and the reason that you give it in, in acute coronary syndromes is because it does have some antiplatelet activity. So if you block the, the platelet aggregation in the initial steps of hemostasis, you can reduce the, at least the evolution of the clot. They already have a clot, right? In ACS, you're trying to reduce the evolution of that clot. Uh, other NSAIDs like Celebrex and Vioxx interfere with one or the other of these enzymes and so help um, reduce the risk of clotting disorders. Yeah, lots of writing. Um, aspirin is still the most commonly investigated drug. So I think right now there's about 1,300 clinical trials in progress on aspirin. Yeah, yeah. And if you're curious about what clinical trials are going on, just go to clinicaltrials.gov. This is specifically for aspirin, but it's very, you can look up all kinds of clinical trials, and it's kind of fun. All right, we've talked about this, we've talked about these guys. Here's the slide that you looked at before about adrenergic receptors. So um, these are the dogs that my grandmother, or grandmother, my uh, aunt uh, raised. Looks like my grandmother, no. <laughs> That's a Mexican hairless dog. Yeah. They win the ugliest dog all the time because they have you know, a little top notch of fur and stuff like that. What's that now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So alpha adrenergics, the alpha dogs, the most common. Ones are excitatory. Twos are inhibitory. Um, the beta receptors, like blueberry, also has categories one and two. Ones are excitatory. Twos are inhibitory. We're lo looking at activating the beta twos to increase dilation of the airways, to improve ventilation. Usually, you know, that's the rate-limiting step of gas exchange. Um, activation of beta ones increases heart rate, increases contractility, because it also allows more calcium into those cardiac muscle cells, and therefore, you're introducing are increasing both components of cardiac output rate and uh, stroke volume. Yep, alpha-1s cause a lot of peripheral vasoconstriction, especially in veins, kind of hard to see here, but that improves venous return um, and therefore end diastolic volume, preload, and cardiac output. There are some uh, alpha-2s on coronary arteries because you want the coronary arteries to dilate so you can improve blood flow to the... Um, uh, to the myocardium, so it can do that extra work. A table that you can look at at your leisure. Huh? You like them? Easy? Yeah? So remember, yeah, exactly. So beta ones, you have one heart, but they're also found at the kidneys because you want the kidneys to respond during um, sympathetic fight or flight as well. Mostly, to reduce filtration, because you don't want to lose more water while you're exercising, but also to activate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system so you conserve as much water. While you're doing fight or flight, you're breathing harder, you're perspiring, you actually want to activate a mechanism to help you conserve water. So if you have or give someone epinephrine, it has a beta-3 response where lipolysis? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we haven't really talked about beta-3s, except... 
when you exercise and you release some epinephrine, because most of the cells of the adipose tissue are not innervated, right? You can't have a nerve going to every single fat cell. Instead, they have a receptor that responds primarily to epinephrine. So when you exercise and release some epinephrine, you want to get at those energy stores in that fat tissue. So it breaks down the fat, that's lipolysis, and you incre increase fatty acids in your bloodstream and you use fats aerobically. So as long as you still do aerobic respiration, um, in those muscles, the muscles will be able to use those fatty acids. So like the more extreme sports, the more adrenaline, the more fat burning? Like yeah, yeah, to a certain extent, as long as you're not going anaerobic in your muscles. Because huh? anaerobic metabolism, remember, you can't make a good beer out of butter or steak, right? Only carbohydrates. So no fats, no proteins for fermentation. Uh, and then the other, so in the purple box here, Activating beta-2 receptors helps relax that smooth muscle in bronchioles, open up the airways, better ventilation, more distribution of air to the alveoli for gas exchange. Okay, all right. <laughs> um, here's a list of, I think this actually is from your, your protocols, um, the risks of using epi, right? So epi is, is, a, is a big dog. Yeah, but necessary in life-threatening conditions. Yep. Hey, and we're done. Yeah, you're welcome. Any questions before I go? Sorry, I went long. Okay.